Wonderful. Andrew, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you live, that sort of stuff. Sure, yeah. Hi, guys. So I'm based down in Bexhill, which is on the southeast coast, kind of near Eastbourne and Brighton, so quite a long way away. But was in the northeast for four years, primarily in Darlington, and I'm very fond of the northeast, so it's nice to be back here. Wonderful. Now, tell us what you do for work, Andrew. What is it that you do? Who do you work for? So I... Uh, have various roles, all of which kind of involve uh, speaking and writing and teaching all around kind of areas of Christian teaching, particularly on sexuality, gender and identity. My main role is with a charity called Living Out. And we exist to help people, churches and society to talk about faith and sexuality with a website for the resources, events and things like this as well. Wonderful. And before you start, Andrew, what is the best thing about the North East? Ooh. It's that... Uh, <laughs> Oh dear, careful, I suddenly feel the stakes careful. are very high. Um, it's a uh, close call, isn't it, between the kind of beautiful open scenery and a good palmo. I couldn't Definitely choose between the two, to be honest. So, uh. <laughs> thank you. Brilliant. Let me just pray for you, Andrew, and then we'll start. Lord, I thank you so much for Andrew. Lord, I thank you for what he's going to share today, Lord. I thank you that it's such an important message, Lord. It's such an important thing for our culture today. So I want to pray you'd be with him today, Lord. I pray you'd give him uh, faith as he speaks these words, Lord. Give him strength. And I pray for us, Lord, would we um, uh, would we have open hearts this morning to hear from you, Lord. I just pray you'd bless Andrew in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thanks so much. Well, we're going to uh, kind of divide our morning into these two sessions. The first one, thinking about understanding sexuality. The second one, thinking about understanding gender. So we're going to start with sexuality, which we can all kind of easily recognise as a really important topic for us to think about. We live in such a sex-obsessed culture. Sex is everywhere. It's on TV and films, it's in song lyrics, social media, even advertising so often actually is basically trying to use sex to sell things. We know that sex is a big deal in our society. And we probably also know that Christians have a radically different view on sex to the world around us. And that that's very obvious when it comes to the kind of the do's and don'ts of sexual ethics. That actually the world around us kind of thinks actually if everyone's happy and everyone's consenting, then pretty much anything can go sexually. But actually Christians have believed for 2,000 years, based on what the Bible teaches, that sex is reserved for marriage unions of one man and one woman for life, of lifelong unions. As those different views are kind of very obvious, there's a very obvious uh, clash or conflict between what many people in the world around us believe and what we as Christians believe and what for 2,000 years Christians have believed. What's not so obvious is kind of the question of why is that? Why is it that Christians believe that sex is reserved for unions of one man and one woman in life, uh, in marriage for life? And we could just answer that question by saying, well, why do Christians believe this? Well, because the Bible says so, which is true and a fair answer. But that's just kind of kicking the can a bit down the road, isn't it? Then the question becomes, why does the Bible say that sex should be reserved for marriage unions? Because that seems so weird to so many people in the world around us in the day and age that we're living. And so actually the key question I think to wrestle with is, why is it that in a biblical understanding, that in God's parameters for us, sex is reserved for one man, one woman marriages? And that's a really important question for all of us to wrestle with as adult humans. We're sexual beings who want to wrestle with how do we faithfully steward uh, the sexuality God has given us. For me, it's been a, a really big question to wrestle with because of my own experience. I'm a guy who's attracted to guys. I'm gay or same sex attracted or whatever language we want to use for that. And so I've had to wrestle with what does God say about sex and marriage and what does that mean for me as a gay guy who wants to faithfully follow Jesus? If Jesus says, I can't marry a man and enter into a romantic and sexual relationship with a man, why is that? Why would the Bible say that? 
this deeper question is so important. For me, it's a question I've had to hugely wrestle with. And many of us would have found that in our own lives, whether because of some of our own experiences or the experiences of people we know and love, or just because we're so conscious of such different views in the world around us. And so we're going to wrestle with that question of actually, why does the Bible say this? And the way I think it's helpful to wrestle with that question is to ask a different question, which is actually to ask, what is sex actually about? That's the real difference between what a Christian believes and what the world around us believes. The surface level stuff is just kind of the outworking of fundamentally different understandings of what sex is actually about. And when we understand what the Bible says in answer to that question, everything else it says about all the kind of do's and don'ts begins to fall into place and kind of make a lot more sense. And we begin to see where the clash between what we as Christians believe and what the world around us believes. And actually, though, before diving into what does the Bible say sex is about, it's worth just pausing for a moment to consider, well, what are people around us in kind of secular culture think sex is about? What are the common answers to that question in the world around us? Just three, I'll very quickly just highlight. I think one really common answer, maybe the most common prominent answer in our culture to what is sex about is it's just about pleasure. For so many people in our culture, sex is just about a bit of fun, just about pleasure. It's not much different to enjoying whatever it might be you like, a nice meal or a warm bath or whatever it might be. And therefore, if sex is just about pleasure, you easily see how the kind of sexual ethic just becomes, well, as long as everyone's enjoying it and consenting, then anything goes right. This is just a bit of fun. That whole concept lies behind what's sometimes known as the hookup culture, particularly coming among kind of younger generations on uni campuses and stuff, where basically the philosophy is let's have as much sex as we can with as little emotional connection as we can. Because it's just about pleasure, just about having a good time. It lies behind the concept of no string sex, the concept of let's just have sex with no kind of emotional strings connecting us, but just to have a lot of fun. It's a really common view in the world around us, underpins so much of how our culture approaches, approaches sexual relationships. Uh, but it's also a really problematic view. It just doesn't seem to be true. And what's fascinating is culture, on the one hand, holds this view and propagates this view, but also knows it's not true. We have the hookup culture. Have as much sex as you can with as little emotional connection as you can. But if you look online, you'll find genuine self-help articles with titles like How Not to Develop Feelings for the Person You're Hooking Up With. We're saying, actually, you don't need to have, or there's nothing more than pleasure involved in sex, and yet we need some self-help advice to make sure we don't get too emotionally connected to the person we're hooking up with. That seems to suggest to me sex is about more than just pleasure. And actually, peer-reviewed research has shown that is the case. The American Psychological Association have an article summarising a load of research, and they say hookups may leave more strings attached than many participants might first assume. No string sex actually turns out to be pretty stringy. It's just not possible to divorce sex from the emotional connection it causes. And of course, the reason we all know that sex isn't just about pleasure is the reality of babies. And actually, you only have to look at the heartbreaking abortion statistics in our nation and so many around the world to realise sex is very evidently about far more than just pleasure. But that's a common answer in our culture. Another common answer, our culture says sex is a need. In two ways, we're told that sex is a need to be kind of a healthy, functioning person, and sex is a need to be a real adult. It's a kind of an adulthood maturity need. But again, if we stop and think about that, we ask, well, is that really true? I'm not aware and yet to have found any serious medical evidence that not having sex is dangerous for your health. We have this concept that actually it's, it's unhealthy, it's repressed to not be having sex as an adult, but where's the evidence it actually does us any harm? 
And on the whole thing, you need to be having sex to be a real adult. I just kind of want to say, well, who says so? And what magically happens to you when you have sex that now you are a real adult? And we stop and think about it. It's a crazy idea, a silly idea. And the final, I think, very common answer to what is sex about in our culture is that sex is about identity. For so many people in our culture, our sexual orientation, the direction of our desires, the form of our sexual desires is seen as core to our being. It's our true self. And so the narrative goes, we've got to embrace that. We've got to express that in order to find our best life. Otherwise, we're denying who we really are. But stop and think about that one, and we quickly realize that all of us experience desires which we wouldn't say are good and we shouldn't embrace as our true self. We can all think of sexual desires that someone might experience, which pretty much none of us are going to go, yes, that's who you really are. You need to embrace that and express that to find your best life. It just doesn't really work as a way of forming identity. And so culture has these answers to what is sex about, and you can kind of see how that underpins the kind of sexual ethics, the do's and don'ts in our culture about sex. But actually all these answers to the what is sex about question in our culture are hugely problematic. We need some better answers, and actually I believe the Christian Bible provides those better answers for us. Let's turn to ask, well, what does the Bible say in answer to the question, what is sex about? And I think there are kind of a few levels of answer we can say here. Three things I'll talk about. Two of them we'll look at briefly and one in a bit more detail. One is I do think the scriptures say that sex is about procreation. I think you see that in Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, that opening creation account, you've got the creation of male and female in Genesis 1.27, which immediately flows into the command to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth in Genesis 1.28. The clear implication is part of the reason for God's creation of male and female is that a man and a woman might unite and be part of this human commission to fill the earth and populate the earth. You see the same in Genesis 2, this close connection between the institution, as it were, or the, um, the design and the creation of sex and marriage and of procreation. You see, what's so striking in Genesis 2, that's, remember, the Eden narrative where this beautiful garden is created and Adam, the first human, is placed into this garden. And God notices, though, and God says it's not good that Adam is alone. And so he decides, of course, to create a helper for him. But what's so striking is notice what God says. He says, I'm going to create a helper. He doesn't say a companion. We hear it's not good for the man to be alone. And our assumption is, oh, yeah, because he's going to be lonely. The details of the text don't suggest that's the biggest issue. He needed a helper. A companion would have solved loneliness. A helper helps you achieve something What was the big problem of Adam being alone? Well, he'd been told to work and keep this garden. The Genesis 2 version of Genesis 1 would rule and subdue the earth. Adam was meant to be tending this garden, God's dwelling place, so it expanded and filled the whole of the earth. One person on their own could not do that. He needed a helper, and there needed to be more gardeners to take the garden of God's dwelling place across the earth. And so he brings a helper who will work alongside Adam in the tending of the garden, and will enable them together to produce more gardeners to take on this commission given to humanity. Actually, when marriage and sex are first instituted, as it were, in Genesis 2, a primary purpose for them, actually, is procreation, that more gardeners might be um, formed, might be brought into the world to fulfill this commission that God had given humanity. And this is a kind of... um, 
an aspect of biblical sexual ethics, the understanding of sex and marriage that Protestants, uh, are half of the church that were, have rather downplayed over the last 500 years for, for various reasons, but I think is very clear there in Scripture and is really important for us to reclaim. Because really it's the separation of sex and babies that has fueled a lot of the change in our culture. What's happening in our culture would not have happened had the pill not come along and had abortion not be made so easily available. Because when there's a high chance of a baby if you have sex, sex is very costly. And you have to be very serious about it before you seek, back, seek to engage in it. Once there's very little chance for you, for you can control the possibility of a baby after sex, sex becomes very cheap. It becomes no big deal in a sense. And that has radically changed views of sex in our culture. And so reclaiming actually biblical teaching that sex and marriage are meant to be about procreation is, I think, really important. That's one answer to what is sex about in a biblical vision. Another one, what is sex about? It's about a one flesh reunion. Again, here we want to think about Genesis 2. Think of what happens in that story where this helper is needed for the first human and none of the animals are a suitable fit. And so God causes Adam to fall into this deep sleep, takes from him a rib, fashions from this rib Eve, the woman who is brought to him. And then there's this union of these two in marriage. And Genesis 2.24, which is that kind of key fundamental statement about marriage, about a man leaving his father and mother, holding fast to his wife, the two becoming one flesh, says that these two become one. There's a, a one flesh union, a uniting of two. But notice... In Genesis 2, it's not just a union, it's a reunion. It's a putting back together of what was just pulled apart in the creation of women. Women is created out of man, and now the man and woman are being reunited together in marriage, in the one flesh union through marriage and through sex. And I think we're meant to see that in the text. Because you get in verse uh, 23, Adam's little uh, kind of song, his little ditty of delight when the woman is brought to him. And he says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh the very next verse, the two become one flesh. She's flesh out of my flesh. Now we're becoming one flesh. There's something deep happening of a union, but it's not just a union, it's a reunion. It's a fitting reunion. And that's part of the structure then of biblical sexual ethics. At several points in the Bible, you'll find this idea of one flesh union underpinning what the scriptures say about marriages. And notice that this union, this one flesh nature of sexual activity is the reason, or one of the reasons, why sex is reserved in the Bible for marriage relationships. You see, sex does something. It unites. That's why all the research shows that no string sex is somewhat more stringy than we think it is, because sex is powerful. It does something. And anything that's powerful is dangerous if it's used wrongly. Powerful things are good when they're used rightly and carefully, but we have to get the parameters right for using something powerful Otherwise, it's dangerous. And so scripture reserves sex for marriage because it's powerful. It's saying the only context in which it's safe to allow yourself to be so deeply united to someone in the way that sex unites us to someone is in the context of a relationship where you've committed to, I'm sticking with you until we're separated by death. I'm going to lay my life down for you day after day and love you through self-sacrifice until we're separated by death. And because there is that commitment it is then safe to allow ourselves to be so deeply united with someone as one flesh. The Bible's restriction of sex to marriage is for our good. It's for our protection. It's saying this is powerful, therefore it's dangerous. And so here is the safe context in which for sex to take place. 
And so sex being about a one flesh reunion is a vital element of the biblical answer to this question. And the final answer, which we're unpacking in a little bit more detail, what is sex about in a biblical vision? Most importantly, sex is about Christ and the church. Sex and marriage are meant to teach us about the relationship between Christ and the church, meant to point us towards God's love for us, his desire for us, his passion to be united with us, and the eternal relationship that we will enjoy and experience with him. You see glimmers of this in the Old Testament. You notice in the Old Testament that the relationship between God and Israel, God and his people, is spoken about in terms of sex and marriage. In the early kind of historical books of the um, Old Testament, when Israel go off and worship other gods, that's spoken of as being like adultery. It's spoken of in the language of sex and marriage, which is hinting at us there's some sort of link between sex and marriage and God and his people. And you get to the prophets a bit later in Israel's history, these mouthpieces, messengers for God, who explicitly talk of God as the husband of his people. Hosea here would be the kind of most famous example. This guy who's called to get married and in his very marriage to um, enact as this kind of prophetic picture the relationship between God and his people. We're learning there's something about, some sort of link between sex and marriage and God and his people, which then comes to its full fruition in the New Testament. Jesus points to it in the fact he calls himself the bridegroom in someone like Mark 2 and a few other places. Which when you think about it, it's a really weird thing. Jesus, a single guy who never gets married, never engaged, and he calls himself the bridegroom. Why is he doing that? Because he knows what the Old Testament has been pointing to. He knows that sex and marriage is ultimately about him. And it's in Ephesians 5 that then becomes most clear. Ephesians 5, Paul the Apostle writing to a church in Ephesus, giving at this point in the letter um, instructions to various different groups of people in the church, including in verses 22 through to 33, to husbands and wives. Portraying for them or uh, laying out for them the way that husbands and wives are to live out their different roles in a marriage relationship. With husbands taking on the role of reflecting Christ and uh, wives taking on the role of reflecting the church. And he gives these instructions rooted in this idea. And it's kind of easy for us to read this and think, oh, isn't it wonderful that there was this handy illustration for Paul? You kind of imagine Paul writing this letter and thinking, oh, bingo, I've got a really helpful illustration to help them kind of get the different roles for men and women or husbands and wives in marriages. What a lucky coincidence. But actually what Paul is saying is this isn't a lucky coincidence. It's not actually that Christ and the church become a helpful illustration for husband and wife marriages actually is that every marriage between a husband and wife is an illustration of the relationship between Christ and the church. The picture is our human marriages. The greater reality is the union of Christ and the church. And so Paul, in verse 31, he quotes that key verse from Genesis. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And he goes on, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. It's really important. He quotes Genesis 2.24, and he quotes it in full. He keeps that word, therefore, at the front of the verse. And there's that cheesy thing, isn't there? You've always got to ask, what's the therefore, therefore? And what that word does is it says, this thing I'm about to say is true because of this thing I've just already said. In Genesis 2, it was true that a man left his father and mother and became one flesh with his wife because women had been taken out of man, as we just saw. Paul says nothing about the creation of women in Ephesians 5. That doesn't seem to be what he's drawing on. 
So what's the reason Paul is giving why marriage exists? Well, the best candidate is the phrase that comes just before where Paul says, because we are part of his body. Because we as God's people are part of Christ's body. Because of that, a man leaves his father and mother, holds fast to his wife, and the two become one flesh. Marriage exists because of the relationship between Christ and the church. And that's why Paul says this is a mystery. This is a mystery profound. A mystery in Ephesians, Paul talks to a few of them, it means previously this was kind of hidden, it was obscured. We, we saw glimmers and we had this partial understanding, but now Christ has come, now we see in full. Now we see clearly, now we can make sense of the whole thing. He's saying now Christ has come, we realise sex and marriage They've always been about God and his people, always been about Christ and the church. This mystery is profound. I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Paul's saying, I'm saying that marriage is about Christ and the church. Not as a handy illustration, but the very reality behind why God has introduced sex and marriage into the world that he created. As that gives us the the fuller explanation of why there's these glimmers of this idea in the Old Testament. The fuller explanation of why Jesus would refer to himself as the bridegroom, even while he's a single guy who's not even engaged. And it explains to us the end of the Bible story. Because if you go through to the end of the Bible story, we find that the Bible starts with a marriage of Adam and Eve, and the Bible ends with a marriage, the marriage of Christ and the Lamb and his bride, the church. So, for example, in Revelation 19, you have a great multitude singing this song of praise, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. The great pinnacle to which all of creation, all of history is leading, is the marriage of Christ the Lamb and his bride, the church. And we know that at that moment, As we are united with Jesus in that eternal marriage and we enter into eternity with him, human marriages will cease to exist. That's why there's that little story where Jesus is tested by the Sadducees and basically the point he makes about is the one about who will this guy be married to if he married or which woman will the guy be married to if um, he's married to lots of them in this life. And Jesus says, no, don't you get none of us will be married in the new creation. We'll be like the angels, not be giving or um, being given in marriage You see, the pictures give way to the greater reality. When an architect has built their great building, they no longer need the little illustrative model because they've got the actual thing. When you've seen the actual film, you don't need to see the trailer because you're experiencing the actual thing. In the new creation, there'll be no human marriage because we'll be experiencing the actual thing it was always pointing towards. And don't worry, none of us will be hanging around thinking, man, I wish I could have sex, or man, I wish I was married to another human because we will be experiencing the very thing, the, the relationship, the soul-satisfying, loving intimacy that every experience of human intimacy was always designed to point us towards. And this is kind of the ultimate happily ever after story. We tend to think in our culture that the happily ever after kind of story is finding the one who is right for us and getting married and enjoying life together. But actually what the Bible is telling us is those happily ever afters are only a faint reflection of the true, happily ever, eternal after of that union. And that true, eternal, happily ever after marriage union is something we get invited into, whether we're married or single, whether we're gay or straight. Every single one of us who trusts in Jesus gets welcomed into that and gets to experience that. This, I think, is the Bible's kind of ultimate answer of what sex is truly, truly 
about. And once we get our heads around that, or begin to, of what sex is about in a biblical vision, it then explains all the different kind of parameters set about sex and marriage. All the do's and don'ts, all the, the guidelines and, and directions, as it were. It's all of this stuff, which is the reason why the Bible says that every, or every all sex outside of a one-man, one-woman marriage is sinful. And so many things could fall into that category, because sex is designed to be part of this fruitful union. It's designed to be within marriage because it's that safe context in which that deep reunion to take place. And ultimately, sex and marriage are designed to reflect the relationship with Christ and the church, which is a committed relationship, which is a faithful relationship. It's a relationship that goes on for eternity, and therefore the picture of it in this life goes on until ended by death. And it's a relationship which is between two who are different. Christ and the church are different. And therefore, the sexual relationships on earth that are meant to point to that are to be between two who are different, a man and a woman. A, a same-sex union can't reflect in the same way the sense of union indifference that marriage and sex are meant to be about and are meant to be pointing us to. This is why any sexual expression outside of a one-man, one-woman marriage falls outside of God's parameters and plan for us. All of this stuff of what sex is about is also the reason why sex is really important in marriage, which Scripture is really clear on. 1 Corinthians 7 particularly, the first few verses would affirm that. Sex is an important part of forming and fostering the deep union of marriage, which is meant to portray that picture of the deep union between Christ and the church. But also, it's the reason why celibacy isn't a waste of sexuality. You see, what this bigger picture, this bigger story is telling us is that our being sexual beings ultimately isn't meant to be, or isn't meant to have the end goal of us entering into and enjoying sexual relationships in this life. Our being sexual beings is ultimately meant to point us beyond sex and marriage to the relationship that can truly satisfy us. Which means actually the end goal of being a sexual being isn't to make sure you experience sex in this life, it's to make sure you experience the relationship that our sexual desires are meant to be pointing us towards. Singleness and celibacy aren't a waste of sexuality, because our experience of sexuality still gets to point us beyond that to Jesus. For a guy like me who doesn't intend or expect to ever have sex in my lifetime, that's not a waste of my sexuality. I'm not missing out on anything I need or the end goal of that because I get to experience the relationship that is meant to point each one of us to. Marriage isn't ultimate, this tells us. It doesn't meet our deepest needs. It's not designed to meet our deepest needs. Marriage isn't the relationship that can truly satisfy us but it is something that points us to the one relationship that truly can satisfy us. When we understand what sex is about in a kind of biblical vision, we also begin to understand all the different things that Scripture tells us, all the parameters of the do's and don'ts of what we do in terms of sex. And so Christians do have really radically different sexual ethics. The lines are in very different places for us, the do's and don'ts aren't. But that's not arbitrary. It's not that God is this kind of old-fashioned or controlling or joy-stealing kind of uh, ruler over us. Actually, it's that he has designed sex and marriage with a wonderful good news purpose that is good news for every single one of us, whatever our situation, whatever our experience of sexuality and I'm convinced that in so many ways it's the Bible's answer to that question and the Bible's parameters which work and are good news for all people. We're in a culture that says you need to be having sex to be satisfied. And yet so many people find they don't get to have sex, so they're immediately being told you can't be satisfied. So many people 
give their lives to pursuing the best sex they can, thinking that that will meet their needs, and it never does. And so they're just chasing and chasing and chasing, getting more and more hurt and more and more empty. And the Bible comes and says, the reason that actually your sexual relationships are never truly, fully satisfying you, the reason so many of us have been so hurt through pursuing satisfaction in sex is it's never meant to satisfy you, but Jesus is. And so to a world which is hurting and broken because of the lie that we've been told about sex and the way people have pursued that and run after that, we get to bring good news. If you've been hurt sexually, there's one who loves you and wants to draw near to you and bring hope and healing and bring you into a relationship that truly will satisfy your very deepest longings. If you long to be married and have sex, but actually it never works out for you, that's okay because actually there's one who loves you and wants to bring to you the soul-satisfying love. You don't need the picture when you get the greater reality. As Christians, we're not on the back foot trying to defend a really peculiar, old-fashioned, restrictive view of sexuality. We need to be on the front foot of we have the good news story for our culture, which is be so hurt and so mucked up in this area. Let's pause there so you have a chance to digest what I know is a lot to take in in a short bit of time. Turn to two or three people around you. You might just want to chew over what do you think, what has struck you, what do you or don't you understand, or you might want to discuss on the notes there, there's three different questions that you might have that someone might come to you with. How might all this stuff, what the Bible says, what sex is about, help you to be in a conversation and to answer some of those questions? Let's take about 10 minutes to, or just under 10 minutes to do that. And then we'll look at some practical outworkings afterwards. Before we get to some Q&A though, let's take a little bit of time just to talk about some kind of practicalities. All the stuff I've said is true and beautiful, but quite theoretical in a sense. How about then, how do we help each other uh, to kind of walk this out and live this out? How can we all flourish and thrive in living out biblical teaching here? We've kind of said that this biblical understanding of, of sex and marriage leaves us with kind of two possibilities if we want to seek to faithfully follow Jesus, either living in an opposite-sex marriage or living in celibate singleness. And the Bible says that both of those things are good gifts. Marriage is a good gift, and singleness, the Bible says, is a good gift. Both ways of faithfully following Jesus. And if we're honest, we don't always believe or experience that both of those are good gifts. We particularly maybe struggle to believe that, to experience that when it comes to celibate singleness. And so I want to just briefly propose, uh, I think it's three areas where I think we need to make sure we get our understanding and our practice right to help us all to experience the goodness of whichever of those gifts God has currently given us. One area I think we need to make sure we get our understanding right is of marriage itself and of singleness. Often we have wrong ideas about both, and then that makes it very hard for us and other people in our church context or church Christian communities to experience the goodness of these gifts. We need to get a right perspective of marriage, some of which obviously we've already talked about. That marriage is this good gift. It is this chance to portray Christ in the church. Every marriage should present to us a little glimmer of that relationship that we get to enter into. Through the self-sacrificial love in it, we get to see something of Christ's self-sacrificial love for us. And recognising that marriage brings with it wonderful blessings, but also brings with it wonderful difficulties, or or difficulties, whether they be wonderful or know it. And it's so important for us to recognise that marriage is not Christian success. And I think we've often not actually realised that, and we've unintentionally suggested that marriage is Christian success, or that marriage is kind of the goal of Christian discipleship, of being a follower of Jesus, 
or that marriage is the relationship we do need to be truly fulfilled and content in this life. As we said, marriage is not meant to be the relationship that can fulfill our every need. It's meant to be the one that points us to, something that points us to the relationship that can truly meet our needs. And the honest truth is we often in churches have kind of idolised marriage and in a sense overvalued in the sense of put too much pressure on it to meet all our needs and made it that pinnacle of human existence and particularly pinnacle of Christian faithfulness. And the result and the problems really with idolising marriage in that way is it damages both marriage and also people's experiences of singleness. Actually, when we have such high expectations of marriage to meet all our needs and be the pinnacle of life, that puts an awful lot of pressure on a marriage relationship, which it can't actually deliver on, and that can really harm marriages. And marriages often really struggle when unhelpful over-expectation, in a sense, is put on them. And then people just mean to find that really difficult and to question what's going on. And actually the kind of the crushing weight of, uh, I guess, expectation and the weight of responsibility put on marriage and what we expect it to do for us becomes harmful to that relationship. And also, of course, having this idolisation in marriage is very bad for any of us who are single because it makes it sound like we are inevitably experiencing second best. We're missing out on what humans need or missing out on being a proper Christian by being married. And so we need to have a healthy biblical understanding of marriage. And then also on the flip side, we need a healthy biblical understanding of singleness. In a sense, with singleness, our default problem is the opposite, isn't it? Marriage, we tend to overvalue. Singleness, we very much tend to undervalue. But scripture is really clear, singleness is a gift, not in the sense of there's this wonderful or this magical superpower you can receive to endure this awful situation of singleness. That is not at all what the scriptures teach. Paul's really clear in 1 Corinthians 7, every person has one of each gifts, one of one kind, he says, one of another. The state of being single is a gift. If you are currently single, you are experiencing the gift of singleness. And the state of being married is a gift. If you are currently married, you are experiencing the gift of marriage. You can't be a single person without the gift of singleness. It's not a superpower to endure something that's otherwise impossible. That's absolutely not what the scriptures are teaching. It's a good gift. And actually, Paul, to be frank, in 1 Corinthians 7 says it's a better gift. You can't get away from the fact that Paul the Apostle in 1 Corinthians 7 says it's better. When I studied at Durham, I wrote an essay in 1 Corinthians 7. Which I was too sheepish to actually admit that Paul says it's better. And my um, professor just wrote on the bottom, but he basically does, doesn't he? And he does. You read it. He says singleness is better. (laughs) Say it how it is. He says there are real practical reasons why those of us who aren't married should enjoy the gift of singleness and should even consider whether actually singleness could be a good long-term option for us. And particularly, Paul talks there about the opportunity that singleness gives us for undivided devotion to the Lord. He says married people are rightly uh, concerned about and have preoccupations about caring for their spouse and for children if they're um, in the family as well. But married people have this opportunity for undivided devotion to the Lord. And so we instinctively think of singleness as the lack of something, the absence of something, the absence of a spouse. Singleness, uh, the scripture sees it as a, a presence of something, the presence of opportunity for undivided devotion to the Lord. And yet so often we don't believe that or we don't experience that. I think there's a few reasons there. One is, we, if we have the wrong view of marriage, it makes it very hard to have a right view of singleness. Actually, we're idolising marriage in the unhealthy way. It's very hard to simultaneously value singleness. I also think a key thing is, I think there's a whole load of other kind of areas of biblical teaching that we have to live out and be able to experience to make singleness work, which without it, it just seems like this impossible thing. 
It's a bit like, I sometimes think of it like if you gave someone, uh, say you gave a child a, uh, a level crossing for that Brio train set, you know, the lovely kind of a wooden train set Brio. And I give a child a level crossing Brio, it's a, it's a wonderful gift. In and of itself, it's a good gift. But if that child doesn't also have some other track and some trains and stuff, it's not going to be experienced as the good gift that it is. Singleness is a good gift. But if we don't get right and put into practice biblical teaching about friendship, about identity, about church, being family, not just as who we are, but living as family, all these different things, even though it is a good gift, it feels implausible, it feels impossible. And so there's a whole load of stuff, some of which we'll come into in just a moment, that we need to get in place to help people experience the goodness of this gift. Identity will be there, love, church's family, friendship, radical discipleship, which I say I'll talk about. We need to work on the things around singleness, as it were, to make it a plausible way of living. And so it takes us on to another area of understanding that we want to think about and make sure we've got right to help us experience the goodness of these gifts, which is understanding love. Biblically speaking, marriage and sex, of course, are about love. They're an expression of and an experience of love, this picture of the love between Christ and the church. But they're not the only way we get to express and experience love. If we believe that marriage and sex are the only way we get to experience and express love, which many people in our culture do seem to believe, it makes it seem like celibate singleness is impossible. Because we can't live without love. We are hardwired by God with a good need for human connection and human love. And so we need to reclaim the ways that actually genuine love gets experienced and expressed outside of marriage and sexual relationships. We need to reclaim the idea of non-sexual intimacy, that you can have a genuine experience of love, um, expressed and received and experienced love within non-sexual relationships. We need to reclaim a biblical understanding of marriage as a relationship, of friendship, sorry, as a relationship of genuine deep love. You ever notice the really striking thing that when Jesus wants to teach his disciples what real love is like, he doesn't use marriage, he doesn't use sex, he uses friendship. John 15, greater love has no man than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. How can I get them to really understand what love is like? Oh, it's not sex, it's not marriage. I oh, know, it's friendship. Really, really challenging to us. Do we think of friendship as a relationship of deep, expressed love? Because Jesus very clearly did. And John 15 is a great place to go look, actually, for Jesus' teaching on friendship. And in the church context, it also links into the idea of church as family. I was really clear that we are family, we are siblings in Christ together. But it's a very different thing, isn't it, to live as family. That's very different to being family. By the nature of how things work, every person is born with biological family. Sadly, not every person gets to experience family life with biological family. It's very different to live as family than it is to be family. We are already family. That's a fundamental fact of reality. But now we need to make sure we live as family. So actually, every person with a single or married gets to experience family and love in the context of church community. It's a proactive thing. So often that means actually just doing the normal things of life, but doing them together. Because most of family life isn't kind of the big special occasions, is it? It's doing the normal everyday things of life, but doing them together. And that's so countercultural, actually, to be in and out of each other's homes and lives and involved in that way. That's what family is like. And that's life-giving for single people who need those kind of connections and experiences of love, those experiences of family. 
It's also really good for married people who, by the way, do need friends outside of marriage as well. That's so easy to forget. It's a blessing to families to have other adults involved in the lives of children. Actually, when we live as family, as church, no one needs to get left out. No one needs to feel unloved. And everyone actually gets to be blessed by the mutual experience of family together. And I think really this is where a lot of the practical work is needed. It's no good us preaching a biblical message, actually faithfulness to Jesus outside of marriage is celibate singleness, if actually we're not living as the kind of communities where people who are celibate and single get to experience the kind of love we created to need and get to have a genuine experience of family that likewise I think we're all created to need. And that's why I think that every single one of us kind of has a, a part to play in actually. Churches become places or communities that live as family when every one of us plays our part in that. And a great thing to go away and think of, what does it look like for me as an individual or for our household to play our part in helping people to experience church as family? Understanding love is so key. And the final one will be understanding radical discipleship. You see, for all of us, following the Christian sexual ethic that we've kind of been trying to outline this morning will make us stick out in society. It'll make it seem weird, increasingly so in the society we're living in. For many of us, it will be very costly in different ways for different ones of us. For some of us, it might feel very acutely costly. Some people, for some of us, choosing to follow Jesus in this will mean laying down the opportunity for a partner, for marriage, for a sexual relationship, for biological or kind of nuclear family in that way. For many of us, actually holding on to this as the months and years go on will mean more and more opposition from people who don't follow Jesus, more and more ostracism potentially in society. It's going to be a difficult thing, but that isn't unusual. That is the normal Christian life. That's the thing we've got to kind of remember. That actually, Christian life, the promise is never that it's meant to be easy or comfortable. And actually, frankly, the promise is basically the opposite. The Christian life will be difficult. Following Jesus will be costly. Jesus says, come and deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. That sounds quite uncomfortable. He says, you lose your life in order to find your life. There's something about dying to ourselves, And through that, we actually experience the greatest life. But I imagine dying to ourselves is often quite painful. It's not a surprising thing when there's cost, when there's pain in following Jesus. But it is a death which leads to life. Within it, actually, we find life as well. We find fulfillment, we find peace, we find joy because we get that relationship we're always made for, the relationship God longs for us to have and has designed us to have. And so we're going to call people to radical, costly following of Jesus in relation to sex and sexuality. For example, people like me who have to make some radical choices about how we live to follow Jesus. If we're going to call people in my situation or similar situations to this, we all need to be living out radical discipleship in areas of sexuality, but also in all areas of life. We can't, as Christian people, be saying, God has a really radical, costly call for us in this area of life, but actually all of these areas of my life, I'm going to carry on how I want. We need to take seriously the call of Jesus to take up our crosses, deny ourselves, and follow him. And that would include, for all of us, radical purity, which goes beyond what we do with our bodies, goes, of course, also to our thoughts, to our words, to what we look at. I just think this is just a desperate area for us as the church to be honest about and be serious about. We live in a society where basically where softcore porn is all around us and is completely accepted, even in things like advertising, mainstream magazines, TV and film and such like. We live in a society where we know sexual misconduct is rife. Think of the Me Too, hashtag Me Too campaign and what's that's revealed. 
The stats on pornography consumption are astounding and terrifying, and most of the stats show the problem is as big in the church as it is outside of the church. We all need to be called to the Bible's radical message on sexual purity and sexual living, but also the Bible's life-giving message on sexual purity and sexual um, relationships. We easily think this is all just about, what about gay people like me? But actually it's about, no, we're all sexual beings and all called to steward our sexuality and faithfulness to Jesus. We need to be doing this across the board, as it were, saying it to us all, not just to some. But as we do that, of course, we had a wonderful promise that the gospel empowers us to do that. We're no longer slaves to sin. We're no longer uh, bound to follow the ways of sin. We're now slaves to righteousness, slaves to God. And now the Holy Spirit lives inside of us and empowers us to live in righteousness, empowers us to grow in self-control. And again, I think that's part of the good news message we have for a world where so many people are addicted to sex, but finding it's hurting them, not helping them. Where so many people want actually to live differently, but find themselves powerless, we get to bring the message of, you are powerless, because actually you're a slave to sin as we all start life. But there's one who can free you from that slavery, and who can give you divine power. He himself, God himself, will come to take up his dwelling place in you to empower you to live this way. We're called to be salt and light, Salt sticks out when you eat it, you notice it, light is noticeable. We're going to increasingly be the odd ones out and all of that, but that is normal Christian life. We need to live out radical discipleship if we're going to do this. That's just a sampling, really, loads of things we could talk about, kind of practical things, but I think getting our understanding of marriage and singleness, of love, of radical discipleship right, begins to get us to a place of being the kind of communities where each one of us, whatever our experience from which we're coming to this, we'll be able to begin to live out God's good parameters and God's good gifts. Let's do some q and I think Gav's going to come and host that so we can unpack some of this together. Just to say thank you so much for the questions. There was a lot of questions um, to get through. We've tried to group a few of them together, but clearly this is an issue that people are interested in. So let's try and get through as many as we can, but uh, we've had to group some. Um, first one we got, and we'll just put two together here, um, it says, why did God create people with same-sex attraction when they won't be able to have sex? And also, why is it being gay or being same-sex attracted not sinful in itself? Jesus said, when you look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart. Great, yeah. Yeah, so why, why did God make people like me? Why is my experience like this? I first want to expand that question. Why does every single one of us experience sexual desires which are seeking to draw us away from God's plan for us. That's striking, isn't it? It's not just gay guys like me who experience sexual desires that actually fall outside of what, how God wants us to act and live. And so then we want to think, okay, so what's the, what's the framework the Bible gives us to understand that experience of actually all of us, in terms of sexuality and lots of other things, experience desires that aren't good for us, aren't what God wants for us. And that's where and Bible's big story is helpful to us. And the reality that God makes this good world, including that we're sexual beings, which is a good thing. But then Genesis 3, of course, you know, sin enters the world. We as humans turn our hearts away from God. And everything in God's good creation gets kind of impacted by, uh, marred by, distorted by, you could say, sin, including our desires. And so every single one of us experiences desires, sexual and other, which are seeking to draw us away from God's best for us. In a sense, desires that lie to us about actually what's good for us and what is right. And so my experience, experience of same-sex attraction is no different to anyone else's experience because we all experience that. And actually, Scripture gives us the explanation for that. 
Again, the Christian worldview has an explanation for why there's some things all of us might experience which we know actually wouldn't be good to act on. It's because sin has come and entered the world. And so then it becomes conf- that's a difficult thing. Does that mean God made me this way? It just gets confusing. You know, God makes a good creation, but creation is marred by sin. To what level is God's involvement in that? Depends on your view of God's sovereignty. It's a different morning completely. Um, but that framework helps us understand why all of us experience these desires that aren't God's best for us. And the thing of, well, what about, isn't it the case, or could it be the case that to experience same-sex attraction in and of itself is sinful? And the helpful reference there to Matthew 5. Matthew 5 is the helpful place to look at this. As Matthew 5 sometimes is misread by saying that, yeah, therefore any experience of sexual desire for someone who isn't our spouse is inherently sinful. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus is very deliberately saying, this is a person who makes the choice to look. This is a person, he uses a, he uses a purpose phrase. The purpose of their looking is in order to lust after someone. It's very different to look at someone, notice they're attractive and feel a desire that's innately in yourself, than it is to choose to look at someone and to choose to dwell on that thought and to lust over them. That's what Jesus is saying. And Jesus' response, notably also, isn't to say you experience these desires and you must seek to have them change. He doesn't say you must pray for these desires to change. He says if your right hand causes you to sin, chop it off. If your left eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. He's saying be radical about the things that lead you to make those choices, to look and to lust. He's not saying your desires need to change. The New Testament's assumption is until Jesus returns, all of us experience desires that are outside of God's plan and that doesn't change until Jesus returns. Our responsibility is how we respond to those desires, not to experience change in those desires this side of new creation. Really good, thank you. We've got another one here that said, um, you said earlier at the start that the church has spoken wrongly about sexuality in the past. And what can we do to heal that harm? And uh, how should we act uh, in future on sexuality? Mm, Such a good question, yeah. Hopefully some of the bits in the last session touched on that a little bit. What do we do to heal the harm? How do we do, how to go forward? We do do, I think there are two things here. It's two things of there is a place for us to to genuinely apologise for that. And so often if we're in a conversation with someone who maybe isn't a follower of Jesus, who has questions around this, even if their questions seem to be quite kind of intellectual of why do Christians think what they think, so often actually lying behind that is an experience, is bad treatment, is someone who's been hurt. And actually it's to talk around why they're interested in this can often actually kind of um, uncover that Christians have treated them or someone they know and love really badly. And it's absolutely right that we as the body of Christ take responsibility for the mistakes we've made. And so generally actually offering apologies for that, acknowledging our wrongdoing in that. But then of course that's pretty empty if we're not also seeking to do better at this and to change how we're acting. And so some of the stuff I've been talking today about the fact that actually we have this good news message, but it's relevant to all of us. All of us are called to um, live out the goodness of God's plan of this. And all of us are called to build church communities where people get to experience the goodness of either of these gifts. So while apologising for the bad ways we've treated, particularly, I guess, gay people in the past, we also need to be proactive in how we're not being hypocritical, how we're not singling out gay people, and how we're making sure that anyone who wants to faithfully follow Jesus is helped to do so in our church communities. Brilliant. And it's just a bit of a follow-up question here, um, which is how do we navigate that conversation on sexuality with, with non-Christians or um, with people seeking? Um, because the appeal to them of pointing to Christ might not make sense. So how do we navigate that conversation? Mm-hmm. I think we can help make sense. And I think it's appealing. I mean... Sex is basically one of the best, or conversations around sex, the best evangelistic opportunities we now have. 
you're a Christian, why do you have these horrible, why do you hate gay people? I don't hate gay people. I've just got certain parameters of what relationships shouldn't be, sex, shouldn't, shouldn't be sexual. And I presume you also think some relationships shouldn't be sexual. I guess I do, yeah. So, so where, why are your lines where they are? They probably won't know. Well, my lines are where they are because, you know what, I think sex is about Jesus. What? You think sex is about Jesus? Yeah, let me tell you, because I think sex is meant to be about teaching us about Jesus' longing for us. And that kind of sense of union that created through sex, that's meant to be this picture of the union that Jesus wants us. They thought we were going to talk about how Christians hate gay people. I'm preaching the gospel to them. And there's something, if this is true, which it is, there's something in the human heart that longs for that relationship with Jesus. And so actually, I think... When we tell it this way, when it's not, oh yeah, God says don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, and only the lucky married people get to have sex, when actually it's no, God says that our very experience of sexual desire is meant to be appointed to him, and that actually the intensity of romance and sexual love is meant to be about his deep love for us. That's really interesting and really appealing. And, you know, we as humans long to know that love. We're particularly a culture where so many people are feeling so unloved. I think it's actually one of the best opportunities for us to talk to about Jesus, not actually one of the kind of most problematic or, or, or whatever. Really good answer, really good. We've got a few practical questions, um, maybe to knock off pretty quickly or spend a bit more time on, but there's one here that says, if a person comes to Christ, but they're in a same-sex relationship with children, which is quite common, what should they do? What, what would the advice yeah. be? And which situation we want, right? All manner of people, all manner of situations coming to know Jesus. <coughs> First of all, let's find out what happens when anyone comes to Jesus. It should be that we're then helping them think, how does now following Jesus, submitting to him as Lord, impact all manner of areas of your life? As what we don't do is, this is the clear one issue in your life, and this must get sorted immediately. Actually, the message to anyone who comes a Christian should always be, this impacts everything in your life, and we're going to walk alongside you on the long, slow journey of working through that. And so we're not treating the gay couple any different than we're treating anyone else. What does it mean in that actual area of life to faithfully follow Jesus? I think it does mean that the, the sexual element of that relationship and the exclusive element of the relationship, because I think the, the, the definitional elements of marriage think in the scriptures are that they're a sexual relationship and they're an exclusive relationship in a way friendship isn't. Those are the problematic elements of that relationship. Those are the things that would need to end to be faithful to Jesus. But then there's very different ways that might happen. So some people might feel, actually, we don't feel we can continue to have contact at this stage and be faithful to Jesus and end the sexual exclusive element of relationship. Some people might feel, actually, we can end those elements of relationship but actually still live together in the house, we own say. It could be radically different, but it's the same repentance is happening, but it's working through with someone. How is repentance going to look for you? And when there are children involved, we definitely say that the... Our, our first step is actually, what does faithfulness to Jesus look like? What needs to change or end here, faithfulness to Jesus? Then the very next priority becomes, how do we then best care for the children in this context? And one quick story where, which I loved and heard about a church who helped with this, they had a couple, same sex couple with kids, come to faith. The couple didn't feel they could continue living together. And so actually there was a family around the corner who said, well, one of you, why don't you come and live with us? You'll be literally around the corner so you can still be involved in the lives of the children while you're seeking now to faithfully follow Jesus. And what I so loved is that church weren't saying, oh yeah, this is a difficult situation for you, off you go, good luck with that. They said, you're now part of our family, this is jointly our situation, it's our responsibility to help you. And that family welcomed this person into their home to make that possible. We should just love, oh, this is going to be difficult and costly, but we're in it together and so we're going to help you with that.
It's really good, really good. Let's have one more, if that's all right. This is um, one of the things you talked about was uh, about friendship, and that's uh, really important in radical discipleship in the church. We've just got a question here which says, how close should a woman and a man get in a healthy church community without falling into un- uh, unintended sexual relationships? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Age-old, yeah, age-old <laughs> <Hey>, question. <laughs> he said there's a fine line there between wisdom and fear. And I think historically, if you're in similar church circles to mine, we've been incredibly fearful of opposite-sex relationships. And part of that is because we believe the lies of a culture. We believe that intimacy is sexual, and that if you get too intimate with someone, it never becomes sexual. And so therefore, we've basically often tried to keep men and women at kind of arm's distance from each other. And I think that's often being a fear-driven thing. What we want is wisdom, and wisdom will be we need to be aware of the possibility of ourselves becoming uh, attracted to someone, or actually of being led through temptation into things, thoughts or actions we don't want to engage with. And so it's finding navigating that line, which is very difficult. So I think actually we should be less fearful in a sense of male-female friendships, or for, for guys like me, you know, close friendships with guys as it were, but actually be very good at being open, at talking about what's going on, Having a, so for me, my close relationship with guys, which is another comparable situation for me, I will be talking to other friends about my close relationships with guys to help me keep them healthy. And as soon as I feel they might be being unhealthy, I'm going to talk to them. As soon as I notice actually I might be feeling something unhealthy towards this guy, I'm going to probably have a season where I don't spend time alone with them and stuff. And I'm not saying because there's this risk, I'm going to live out of fear and never have close relationships with guys. I'm saying I'm going to put things into place to help me to be wise and responsive about that. And church community together, we can help each other to do that. And so it's, 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 it's a great area. It's not easy to know where's that line, how's that work. But we're missing out on something if actually because of fear, we always avoid those deep, meaningful friendships. But actually we need to find the wise ways of navigating that uh, and, yeah, and finding the goodness in those. Do you know, I could do Q&A all day. There's so many questions and the answers are just amazing. But we're going to take a quick break now. We'll have some refreshments out in the hall. Um, Do go and visit the bookstall and uh, get hold of Andrew's book if you like. And we'll come back in a little while.